Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, when we have a a God-centric, what they call a theocentric view of Scripture, of the world, of our lives, that's the correct view. That puts everything into the right perspective. When God is at the center, when He is the focus, when we have a man-centric, a human-centric view, that's when everything gets out of whack. That's the problem with the world, is it's human-centric. Well, we are here believing that God is the focus of all things. And that this Word is about Him Though it teaches us about us, and we realize things about us, and we learn about us, this is about God. As revealed in these last days through His Son, Jesus Christ. And His Son, Jesus Christ, is the one seated on the throne and speaking to us through these words this morning. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And oh, if we only could stop right there. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know what verse 8 does? It sets a very serious tone to all of these verses. It makes it real. It, It helps us to realize and understand God is not messing around. He's very serious with what He has to say to us. Well, Father, we seriously want to hear. And we pray that You will... Lord, allow us to approach You courageously this morning. That we might approach Your throne of grace with boldness, knowing, Lord, that it is the blood of Jesus that covers and cleanses. Knowing that You have done all things to allow us to come into Your righteous and perfect presence because, Lord, because You took our place and took our sin on Yourself. And so we do approach You boldly this morning. And I just pray that we would have the courage, every one of us, to hear every word of what you have to say. And to be changed by it. And to walk by these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you've been here for the last 15 years, I have. You know I'm intrigued by idioms and phrases and sayings. Why we use them, where they came from. I'd like to find out what was the original intent? When was this first coined? If it's a, a phrase. And there's one that first appeared in writing in 1175 AD in a manuscript called Old English Homilies. And it reads as follows. I'm going to try and read it to you as it's written. I don't know if I can. What is that my that whore's wetrian, the himself no drinking? That's pretty good. It translates, Who is it that can give his horse water of itself which will not drink? Sound familiar? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And this is the oldest of all English proverbs. 
It can also be translated and may have originally been meant to say, who is he that waters the horse and does not drink himself? Which is a completely different spin. So it's the one leading the horse to water who himself or herself remains thirsty and not the horse at all. Horses are fine with it. They guzzle. They'll drink 5 to 15 gallons of water a day. But will we? Do we drink? In the text before us, Jesus makes an absolutely crystal clear offer in verse 6 when He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Note that, to the one who thirsts. To the one who thirsts. I wonder, are you more thirsty now than when we started our study through the Revelation? I am. I am. I am more, I'm more hungry. I am more thirsty. I am more desirous of more of God's Word to seek and to know and to understand. That's why we're hooking back around to Genesis in a few weeks here because I can't wait to get more of what He has put on the table. And as we come nearly to the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ, here's something to realize. This is not the revelation of God's eternal business. It's the revelation of Jesus to show us and to reveal it to us the person of, the character of, the nature of Jesus who is in every way the exact representation of God who brings us the reality and understanding of God. So what I'm saying is don't expect to finish out the Bible with every question answered. Not going to happen. Don't expect ever to get there. Every inquiry resolved. Every last thirst quenched. Because you will always find yourself thirsty for more. Hungry for more. So don't stop thirsting either. Don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking. Because what Jesus offers to you, to me, is a spring. Not a communion cup. Not a water glass. Not a bucket. He offers a spring. The word spring there in verse 6 is pegas. And pegas in the Greek means literally a fountain or a well fed by a freshwater spring. So it flows, it's constant, it's rejuvenating, it's always flowing, it's always sweet. And as much as you may thirst, He will provide drink. He provides living water. Non-stop, flowing, rushing water. You see, God created us, and in the creation of humanity, knew that He was creating a being that would always seek, and always thirst, and always hunger, and always want to explore, and learn, and discover, and discern. Which should tell us something heading into eternity that it's never just going to get dull. The spring is not going to dry up. The Father's business, His plans, His ideas, what He's going to be doing in creation throughout eternity. Wait, I thought creation is destroyed. Old creation. But He is a creator by nature. And we are curious by nature. What a great pairing. Because what that means is throughout all eternity, we're going to be seeing what He's doing. And don't think He'll be finished. Even when we get to the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, I believe God's still going to be doing things. We're going to come wandering in and see Him doing a brand new thing all over again. And we're going to be amazed and praise and worship God because that's who He is. We were made to be thirsty. And satisfied, and thirsty, and satisfied, and thirsty, 
and satisfied because the spring never stops. And Jesus promised, He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I've had many people over the years come to the bridge. And, and, and because of our pattern, this is not a statement about the bridge over and against any other church fellowship, but because we get into the Word and we teach through the Word and we spend time breaking down the Word to seek to understand the Word, I've had many people say, I didn't realize how hungry I was. I didn't realize how thirsty I was. That only happens when we get out of the Word and we stop asking the questions. That happens when we get away from the, from the digesting of the Word of God and the gulping and the guzzling of the Word of God. When we deny the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, when we get distracted and when we get man-centered, then sometimes we forget and we can go through life absolutely dying of thirst, not even realize it until we have, have or are given a big gulp and we begin to guzzle again. That's such good news to me, it is not a one-time thirst quenching. It is an ongoing promise of Jesus that we will get hungry and we will get thirsty again, and yet we will be blessed and be satisfied in it. So listening to Jesus and picking up in verse 5, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We began to talk about that last week and we looked into New Jerusalem on Wednesday night. If you haven't listened to that or studied through Revelation 21, it's breathtaking. New Jerusalem. But he also said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Now, some will tell you, some say, some commentators say, God the Father is speaking from the throne here. Not Jesus. Now, the immediate answer to that is simply to say both are present. So it doesn't really matter which one is speaking because both speak with the full authority of the other. And if it's Jesus speaking, well, that's God. And if it's the Father speaking, well, that's God. So I don't have a problem if someone wants to say, well, it's God speaking from the throne. I say, yes, it is. Now, I believe it is God in the person of Jesus and that the letters should be read. Actually, I think all the letters should be read. Genesis to Revelation should be read. But these should be the red letters. Jesus speaking. And you might say, okay, well, Rick, why do you think that? How do you know that this is Jesus speaking here? Well, first of all, twice in the Revelation, Jesus either calls himself or is called faithful and true. These are words that describe Jesus. They're also words that describe his word, He calls himself faithful and true in Revelation 3.14. He calls himself faithful and true, or he is called the one who is faithful and true, sitting on that white charger coming back, Revelation 19.11. He is faithful and true. But twice John is told that these words are faithful and true as well. And if you look over at Revelation 22, verse 6, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Who's coming quickly? Lord Jesus. I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. By the way, another way to say blessed is he who heeds is blessed is the thirsty who drinks. So drink up. And back in verse 6, 
Furthermore, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Well, who's the Alpha and the Omega? Well, that's Jesus. Well, I think it's God the Father. Good! Because it is. And yet, Jesus refers to himself and is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega in three places in the Revelation. In fact, look ahead at Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right, well, that's Jesus speaking there. Here he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's why I said back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, if you can recall all the way back then, When he refers to himself as the Lord God, the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, that that is Jesus talking. Because he is Alpha and Omega. And it's also interesting to note, we pointed this out nine months ago, that while the word Alpha is spelled out, Alpha, Lambda, Phi, Alpha in the Greek, Omega is simply the letter. It's just the Greek character for the letter Omega. That's all you see here. It's all you see in Revelation 22, verse 13, and Revelation 1, verse 8. It's always, I am the Alpha and the Z would be our closest equivalent, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the, spelled out, Alpha, and I am the Omega, simply the letter. Why is that? Because Jesus is the Word never-ending. It's not that he's incomplete. It's just that he's never ending. He is Omega. He just keeps going and going. And 1 John 5.20 tells him that we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. True God and eternal life, Jesus Christ. So I believe this is Jesus speaking. And note in verse 6, he says again, it is done. It is done. Two of the most important declarations in all of history that we have in the scriptures. It is finished and it is done. And they're two different phrases. It is finished from the cross. John 19.30 And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And it is that word, die, which speaks of a completed work. The work is done. A carpenter would say, die" when he finishes smoothing out the table and it's ready for sale. And so Jesus says, die." it's a completed work. It's done. But here, it's done. Really, literally, done. It's a different word. It's from the word, Ginomai. Which means it has come to pass. One is a completed work. The other one is a passage that is finished. As in Revelation 21 verse 4, look up at the a few verses ahead. The first things have passed away. It is past. It has come to pass. It's over. Revelation 16, 17, we saw this phrase earlier. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out from the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. And in that moment, it meant the tribulation is past. The pouring out of the wrath of God, this season is over. This is finished, done and done. But now, now we're in Revelation 21 and we have reached the point when everything is done. 
everything that needed to be completed before this point in God's eternal plan is finished. Everything has come to pass from creation to Abraham. 2,000 years. From uh, Israel to Messiah. Another 2,000 years. From His passion through the entire church age 2,000 years. And then the tribulation, done. The millennial kingdom, done. The final judgment, done. And every season, every dispensation, if you will, of God with mankind is now history. It is done. All these things are past. And now, now we're looking ahead. Now we're looking at that time that is just almost hard to describe. John tries to in two chapters. Gives us best foot forward. And even the words here, well, I don't believe can come up to the experience we will have when everything is done and we head into eternity. It's still absolutely remarkable. The new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. But my friends, here it's just getting underway. It's just beginning. It's like the first day of a honeymoon. First day, perhaps we should say, since we've already had the honeymoon with Jesus, this is now the first day of real eternity, of life moving forward. With a God who is never ending, and with Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8 So, before the grandeur of New Jerusalem is unfolded before us in Revelation 21. Jesus here says, It is done! And then He makes three crystal clear comments from the throne. First one, an infinite spring. An infinite spring. He says again, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's free. We are so used to paying for water now. There are people in history who would think, that's nuts. Are you kidding me? You buy water? My water bill comes to me every other month. I happen to be in a household that uses more water. I can't, I just, it's unfathomable. The amount of water the Crawford family goes through on a monthly basis. It's just stunning. And I pay for it. So I know what water costs. That's why I love going to Costco. Because you can go to Costco and buy those little water bottles. And they're cheap. They're so cheap. I just, I thrill at that. I'll hold up a bottle. You know how cheap this is? But we're still paying for it. And Jesus says, this is free. This is free, is ever flowing. Come and drink. It's always fresh. He describes an infinite spring of the sweet water of life. The water of life. You know, people have searched for that for centuries. Thousands of years. They've gone looking for the fountain of youth. I'd love to find that. (laughs) You know what? We have. His name is Jesus. And He is the fountain of eternal youth. He is the fountain of refreshment. But you can go back to Herodotus in the 5th century B.C., Or ask Prester John in the Crusades around the 11th, 12th century A.D. Ponce de Leon was apparently searching for the fountain of youth when he discovered Florida in 1513. Didn't find it there. 
But the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches a fountain here. Not just of youth, but of eternality. A fountain of divine satisfaction. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. So you're not going to find it pumping on earth somewhere. It's with the Father. Again, there's a God-centric perspective. With you, that's where I find that fountain of life. Psalm 42 verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's funny, we have, I've told you before, in our front yard, we have this creek bed, and then we have a little bird bath, and then Cheryl will hang out these little things that have bird food in them and she'll put nuts out for the squirrel. I mean, she's inviting all the vermin of the neighborhood to our house. The kids are using the water. My wife's inviting the vermin. What's going on here? And it was funny this morning, I'm looking out there and we have that, we have that little bird bath and, but the creek bed is just dry. There's, it's just rocks, you know, unless it's been raining. And so I look out and there's a little squirrel and he comes running up and he jumps up on the, on the little fountain, the little bird bath there, and the water's kind of scuzzy and rusty looking. It doesn't look very good. And he, he, he bent down, took a little sip, and, <laughs> and he fell over and died. No, no, he didn't. But then he jumped off and he climbed up the tree because normally we have, and it's still hanging there, we have this little container, this, this little wire thing that, that holds a corn cob. So he can climb up and he hangs upside down. It's really funny to watch him do that, to eat the corn cob. Well, there's no corn cob there this morning. No nuts on the ground. And this little squirrel's just looking around like, what is up? I'm going to have to go next door, you know. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? I it just, I don't know. Oh, as the deer pants for the water brooks. So I'm looking at this little squirrel going, this guy's hungry. This guy is tenacious and he'll be back. Will you? Will you be back? Do you pant for the water brooks? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry for the word of God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Psalm 63 verse 1 says, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's interesting. David says, my soul thirsts for you. That's his mind. I'm thinking about you constantly. I desire you intellectually. I want to know you. I'm thirsty for you in my mind. And he says, my flesh yearns for you. How is that the opposite of so much of humanity today where our flesh yearns for anything but God? How do you get the mind to thirst and the flesh to yearn for God? You meet Him in the place of the Spirit. By His Spirit, you, in your spirit, drink of living water. You let the Spirit, which is, if you're focused on God, then His Spirit connecting with your spirit will impact your mind and your body. And next thing you know, you'll find your mind is thirsty and your body is yearning for the things of God because that's where your heart is. Remember what Jesus says? Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it works both ways. Oh God, I seek for you. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. God responds. We see the passion of David. And the yearning and the searching and the thirst of David in the Psalms. Well, you know what's happening in Jeremiah, right? At this point, Jerusalem is far from God. And the Jewish people 
are at their lowest ebb. And Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem and Jeremiah is prophesying the words of God, trying to get to the hearts of the people. Jeremiah the weeping prophet because no one will listen to his message. And into this season of Israel, God said, Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've done it to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's like being that squirrel and saying, I would rather have this rusty muck than go to the fountain. I would rather just drink what I can collect myself in my own cistern. Yeah, it's broken, it's cracked, and it leaks. But I'll just drink out of that. I don't need you, fountain of living water. No thanks. God says, those are two evils. Not only are you denying me, but you're trying to fill up on something that's not going to work. You're trying to collect what you can of the leftover rather than going straight to the source. You know, you don't need a cistern when you've got a spring. You just go to the spring. But what do we do? What does humanity do? We, we continue to try to quench an eternal thirst with temporary drinks. Earthly gulps that just dissipate, they evaporate, they don't satisfy, and you cannot and do not satiate or satisfy with temporary things. That's why God says to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Because again, the water's free. And it's flowing. And of course, Jesus made that remarkable statement to a woman who I believe was in a season of great thirst, John 14 verse, or John 4 verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Revelation 21 isn't the first time Jesus spoke these words, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He had already spoken those exact words to the woman at the well just outside of Sychar in Samaria, a woman dying of thirst. I can give you something that will quench your thirst nonstop. And it was the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 47, who was given an amazing view of what this looks like, or or at least a sense of it. A view in the Millennial Kingdom. So not New Jerusalem, There's something else that will happen in New Jerusalem, but in the Millennial Kingdom, he sees the temple. And he looks. And there under the threshold of the temple is a little stream that just runs right out from under the steps. Runs right across the patio there. And down, and down the steps, and out. And it begins to grow. It supernaturally expands. It goes from a trickle to ankle deep. And then it goes from ankle deep to knee deep. And it becomes, by our measurements, from Engedi to Enegleim, it becomes a river 22 miles wide. The Mississippi is a mile and a half at its largest. 22 miles of rushing river. It starts as a little streamlet in the temple, which is the fountain 
of the water of life. And we will see that in the millennial kingdom flowing right out of the temple so people will make no mistake as to where living water is coming from in the kingdom. It's coming right out of the throne. And of course, that's just a picture of a river that will flow eternally. Well, look at it. Revelation 22, verse 1. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And what's amazing here, and what's different than in the Millennial Kingdom and Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel's vision is coming out from under the threshold. Here, it's flowing directly from the throne of God and the Lamb Himself. And it will flow for eternity. An infinite spring of living water. And we'll look at that more on Wednesday. And back in verse 7, he continues. After promising an infinite spring, he says, And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He'll inherit these things. What things? Well, go back all the way to Revelation 2 and 3. This is he who overcomes will inherit these things. Well, what did the overcomers of Revelation 2 and 3 What did they inherit? They inherited the tree of life. They inherited no second death. They inherited hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. They inherit authority over the nations, which by the way may extend into eternity beyond the millennial kingdom. Authority over nations. Names indelibly inked into the book of life. They inherit. The overcomers inherit pillars. They become pillars in the temple Standards, if you will. And they inherit the right to sit with Christ on His throne. All those things. He who overcomes, you get to inherit those things. And of course, right here, what else do we inherit? Well, we inherit a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. He who overcomes will inherit all of these things. Now, you might ask a question. Wait a minute, Rick. What do you mean that authority over the nations may extend into eternity. With great inheritance comes great responsibility. I think that came from Spider-Man. Something like that, didn't it? Yeah, one of the superhero movies. No, with great inheritance comes responsibility. And this is the upside. Remember, let me remind you of this, the parable of the minus and the talents. Right? Those who would invest minus, whether it's a little or talents a lot, What you invest now is going to have an impact on your authority in the millennial kingdom. I think it's more than that. I think the ruling and reigning that we are promised, that we are guaranteed, it's a kingdom ruling and reigning, right? Guess what? The kingdom doesn't end after a thousand years. The kingdom keeps going. And we are part of what's going on. And that is to say that right now, those two parables, what they indicate is that we are in training for the coming eternal kingdom. Which includes the first thousand years, but doesn't stop. We are in training for that. This life is boot camp, it's trade school, it's college, it's grad school, all rolled into one. This is your preparation time. This is not the end. You don't go through life and go through elementary school and middle school and high school and then on to college maybe if you go to college or to trade school or right into work to prepare for what you're going to do for life so you can work for a few miserable years until you retire and lie around wondering why the kids don't call. That's not what it's about. What a limited perspective. That's the perspective you have if you have a human-centric view. 
If you have a God-centric view, you realize this life, 100% from beginning to so-called end, is preparation. This is school. When we get there, we're going to be able to actually go to work. But it's going to be a work that is joyful and exciting and, and pleasurable and satisfying. Because the kingdom doesn't end after a thousand years. Why would we think our responsibilities come to a stop? I think we're going to hit a point, move into New Jerusalem, and God's going to go, all right, well, I got to go. I'm in retirement now. Have a nice life. <laughs> we are just getting started. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul said, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When, when do we do that? Millennial kingdom? Okay. Do you not know that we will judge angels? See, I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> There is something here beyond that God has out there for us. I believe that we're going to have responsibilities of inheritance, joyful, satisfying roles and charges. Because with inheritance comes responsibility. That's the deal. You inherit everything from your parents. Guess what you get? The responsibility now over those things. And especially if you were a Jew. If you were the son who received the inheritance, you got the family farm. You got the livestock. You got everything that was the responsibility of the Father. You now inherit that as well. You don't just inherit the stuff, but you inherit the opportunity that all that provides. And that's what we're looking at, an inheritance. In fact, in fact, better than inheriting remarkable things, all of these promises to the overcomers, and better than the inheritance itself is, number two, note this, We have an inherited sonship. An inherited sonship. See, more than what the son gets is the fact that he is a son. That's that's the real inheritance. So while we have an infinite spring, we also have an inherited sonship. He says again, I will be his God and he will be my son. How important do you think that was for Jesus? When he lived, walked on the, on the earth in flesh, and his whole ministry began with a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How do you think that worked in the heart of the Son of Man who is Son of God? That's Matthew 3.17. And I'm convinced that Jesus spent so much time with the Father because sonship was such a potent strengthener of the Messiah. In His flesh as He walked among us that He was moved and encouraged by hearing His Father say, Son. That's my dad's favorite word for me. It's the word that I use for my sons. And now the word I use for my grandsons. I don't call them by their names, Silas and Ethan. I call them grandson. I want them to hear, son, son, you have an inherited sonship. And then Matthew 17, verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And while Peter was all enamored by Elijah and Moses and Jesus, God said, Elijah, Moses, Schmoses. This is my son. You focus on the son. Listen to him. And all those 
All those early ups, all that praying through the night, Jesus lived out sonship. The presence of the Father. He showed us, you and me, what being sons is really all about. Some of you ladies right now are going, okay, well that doesn't apply to me. Wrong! Because as I've said many times, if we have to be the bride, you have to be sons. And that's how it works. Listen, get this. And and guys, let me speak to you first on this. We are the bride. Not in terms of femininity. You know, the fine linen, bright and clean. You're not going to be walking around all weirded out in a wedding gown. I think the fine linen is going to be like a jeans and a hoodie. It's going to be cool. But we are the bride. Not in terms, again, of femininity, but in terms of intimacy with Christ Jesus. And we guys need to get that. That, that's an area where men can tend to fall short. The area of intimacy. Being close. Being in depth with Jesus. Sharing everything that is within us. The things we don't even share with our wives. Because <laughs> we're too male. The things that we keep to ourselves. You don't keep anything from Him because He hasn't kept anything from you. So we are the bride in terms of intimacy with Christ. Ladies... Along with us guys, you are sons. Not in terms of masculinity, but in terms of inheritance. Which is a marvelous thought. Because in the days of Israel, this was not even considered until until some daughters came to Moses. And their father had died and he hadn't had any sons. He only had the daughters. His name was Zelophehad. It's a great story. Zelophehad's daughters, they come to Moses. They say, we have, we're going to lose our inheritance. All that is allotted to our father. All the land and, and the responsibility and, and with it, the, the provision, we're going to lose because there's no firstborn son to care for us and to oversee the family. It's just us, the daughters, Zelophehad's daughters. What do we do? Do we lose our inheritance? Moses takes it to God. Why does Moses take it to God? Because Moses, like any man, is thinking, well, yeah, they're not sons. So he goes to God. God says, you give those girls the inheritance. And for the first time, we see women receiving an inheritance that belongs to men and maybe start to understand a little bit about sonship is not a masculine, feminine thing. Sonship is about inheritance. And ladies... You have the inheritance of sons. Even as men, you are the bride of Christ. Let's just get over it and get with it. If you'll turn back to Romans chapter 8, Paul explains it really well. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, or let's see, 14. Romans 8, 14. If you've got your Bible, turn back. It's the only place I'm going to make you turn this morning, so go there now. And I'll have a sip of this cool, refreshing, everlasting water. Romans 8.14 You might want to keep a finger in Romans 8. We may go back there one more time. Romans 8.14 Get this, mark this. Ladies especially, you might want to circle or underline this in your Bibles. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. He does not say sons and daughters because he's not talking about our, our sex. He's not talking gender. He's talking position. 
and all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. See, in the house there were two roles, servant and son. You're a slave of the house, you work for the master of the house, or you're a son in the house. Guess what? We're no longer slaves. We're sons, all of us. And he says in verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also may be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, sons, which is the redemption of our body. If you are led by the Spirit, you are a son of God. I would take issue with my Pentecostal brothers and sisters who say that the proof that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. I would say the proof that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is you know you are a son. Sonship. And it's for all of us. Because the inheritance is for all of us. And by the way, you can go back now. Keep your fingers there, but go back to Revelation 21. This is the promise fulfilled. This sonship promise that Paul talks about in Romans 8 is fulfilled. We see it fulfilled here before the advent of New Jerusalem. As Jesus says, I will be His God and He will be my Son. So He promises us an infinite spring and an inherited sonship. But dial in now. Dial in. We have to do verse 8. When I was a teenager, Revelation 21.8 was a song. Any of you remember that? Revelation, Revelation 21.8, 21.8. Liars go to hell. Liars go to hell. Burn, 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 burn. That's what we sang. I'm not kidding. Anytime one of our friends was caught in a lie, oh, revelation, you know, we just. And I am so thankful for grace. You know what we didn't understand? We didn't understand the gravity of Revelation 21, verse 8. We need to understand it this morning. Because listen, God's love is so great and His desire for you and for me to be there in New Jerusalem is so big, Jesus has to give this verse. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And it's a death never ending. 
It's an eternal situation. An intense separation. We talked about the infinite spring, the inherited sonship. This is an intense separation. People will talk about hell as being separation from God, and it is. It is, absolutely. But it's not a floating sea of vast nothingness. I'm just separated from God. Well, that's fine. I didn't really care much for Him anyway, someone might say. So I'll just be separated from Him. It's not just floating out there somewhere. Out on your own to do your own thing. And it is not annihilationism. We talked about this recently where one just ceases to exist and you don't go to hell to pay a certain amount of penance and when you've really paid for all your last sin, every last one, then you're let out and you just kind of cease to exist. That's not what the Bible teaches. Hell is an everlasting lake of fire. It is continual. It is non-stop. And the first thing we need to ask when we read the list here in Revelation 21, verse 8, the first question ought to be, is this me? Is this me? Because, brothers and sisters, this question or or this verse is not directed at pagan unbelievers. This is directed at the church. Their outcome, the pagan, the non-believer, the one in rebellion... The outcome is the same, the lake of fire. But the people being addressed, at least first and foremost in the book of Revelation, is the seven churches. At this point in the Revelation study, how many non-believers have ever even gotten this far? Why would they? They're not paying attention. They're not listening. Oh, that we would pay attention because the question is, am I cowardly? Am I unbelieving? Am I abominable, murderous, immoral, a sorcerer, idolater? Those two, you might think, well, I can check those off real quick. Liar? Oh. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Is this me? This is the question that needs to be answered because this statement is directed for those who claim to belong to Jesus but they don't live like they do. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you living like it? Does your lifestyle reflect what you claim to believe? Wait, wait, Pastor Rick, are you saying I can lose my salvation? That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about what Jesus said. When He said in Matthew 7.22, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, and in Your name cast out demons, and in Your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew You. That is a key phrase. I never knew You. We talked a lot again on Wednesday night about the difference between relationship and religion. Which almost sounds trite because we've looked at that so many times and yet that is, that's the great divide. Do you have a religious view or a relational view? And by the way, you know what all those people have who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? You know what they have? They have religion. They prophesy in His name and they cast out demons in His name and even perform miracles in His name. And they're doing all these things. That's religion. 
You know what mitigates against lawlessness when Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness? What mitigates against that and against cowardice and immorality and all the things on this list is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you walk with Jesus... If you know Jesus and He knows you, if you're living with and for Jesus, then these things do not apply. But the cowardly, the cowardly are those who choose their immediate well-being over a relationship with Jesus. They would rather be self-protective. They're unwilling to risk anything for Him. I'll go to church as long as I can park in the back. As long as I'm not seen in the workplace as one of those churchgoers, I'll slide in. It's cowardly. Anyone who's not willing to take a hit for Jesus. What about the unbelieving? The unbelieving are those who always have a backup plan, refusing to truly put all trust in Jesus. Where are you at with that one? How trusting or how non-trusting are we? In our lives. How much are you willing to put on the line for him? Because he said, hey, I'd like you to do this thing. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Love you, Lord. (laughs) Not going to serve in that way. That's crazy. That's for those other nutty people who do those weird... No, I'm I'm not going there. Unbelieving. Untrusting. What about the abominable? That word abominable literally means they stink. It means a detestable stench. Why? Because they smell so much like the world they love. They smell like the world. I remember some, I'm not even sure where I heard this last week, but someone talking about hanging out. Oh, it was Jim Crouch. (laughs) Shouldn't have named him, but I just did. Is he here? Is Jim here this service? Oh, good. We can talk about him. Jim was saying, we were talking about this briefly at our shepherds meeting this last week, and Jim said, yeah, I remember as, as a kid, I'd go hang out with friends that I shouldn't be hanging out with, and they'd all be smoking. And I'd walk in the door, and I would smell of smoke. My parents knew immediately where I was, that I was someplace that I shouldn't have been. Abominable. You smell like the world. You come walking in, thinking that you've used the right breath spray, you know, and you've used the right aerosol around you, and you've tried to get all the smell off, and you come walking in, and Father goes... See, what he's looking for from believers is a pleasing aroma. A a, a sweet incense that comes through our prayer, which, by the way, is itself relational. The abominable, they stink like the world they love. Murderers, what about murderers? Well, they just don't value human life. Remarkable. George's heartbeat law is bringing out all the murderers of the world. That's what's happening. If you're watching in the news, you know, I just read, I think it was this morning, Spike Lee is, is calling for a boycott of any movies that would do filming in Georgia. Okay, Spike, we know where you're at. And all because they pass a bill that says you cannot abort a baby if you can detect the heartbeat. No, a woman has to have the right to choose to kill that child. Murderers. Murderers. And by the way, these things are being taught in churches. Murderers. The immoral, well, okay, there it is again. 
Immoral persons. I've told you this. Every time you see the word immoral in the New Testament, it's pornos. It's sexually immoral. And I get tired of addressing it. I truly do. I get as tired of addressing sexual immorality in our teachings as I do turning on the TV and the show coming up and it happens right there in the first five minutes. I'm sick of that. Don't you get tired of that stuff rolling into your living room? Doesn't it make you gag? And it's the same thing. I see it in Scripture. Here it is again. All of the sexually immoral. I don't want to address this. Why does the Bible keep addressing it? I'll tell you why. Because it is one of the characteristic cultural traits that defines humanity here at the end of the age. This is one of the biggest issues that we deal with. And by we, I mean the church. The sexual immorality that is winked at and ignored in church today, it's it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And and what we do is we play the game. We do the same thing with tithing. We play the game. uh, We come and the pastor mentions sexual immorality and we feel a little uncomfortable. How long do I have to be here and put up with... Okay, and at lunchtime, good, I'm out. And then we go right back to the same patterns. Right back to the same thing. Either a sexually immoral lifestyle, in all of its forms, any of its forms, or, or, or embracing and accepting and approving of a sexually immoral lifestyle. Listen, please listen to me. Some of our number need to get this this morning. The problem of sexual immorality in the church is people don't comprehend the satisfaction and gratification of a spiritually intimate relationship with Jesus. When I know how gratifying it is to be with Him, it so far outweighs, outshines any sexual... Why would I want that when I have Him? If you play the game of just just say no, well, just say no is never enough. But to say yes and to be in that intimate relationship, that's why, gentlemen, I keep saying, we need to understand what it means to be the bride. We need to understand intimacy with Jesus Christ that will wash away the pornography, that will wash away the desire for anything that's not of Him, that's not about Him. The bride is unfaithful, stained, and defiled. The son is a runaway prodigal when it comes to these things. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writes, But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or, or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, that's what Jesus is saying right here. My friends, the kingdom of Christ and God is New Jerusalem. Which is what we're looking at. It's what we're on the verge of. Look down at verse 27 of Revelation 21. It says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So none of this is going to be there. None of this is going to happen at that time. The intense separation is for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons, and and sorcerers. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I'm glad we're to that one on the list because that has nothing to do with me. Pharmakios. Sorcerers is pharmakios. It's witchcraft or drug use. I mean, take your pick because the two go hand in hand. The two were symbiotic, especially, especially in the first century. If you're into witchcraft, you're into drugs. And if you were into drugs, you were probably into witchcraft. It's covens and cannabis. They're, they go together. And both are prevalent in this age. Absolutely prevalent in this age. And some might, might protest, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. The state of Washington has made it legal. So you're going to entrust your eternal life with the lawmakers of Olympia? Or D.C.? Hey, hey, the, the Supreme Court, they said it's cool. Supreme Court ruled on marriage. Therefore, really? You're going to take the word of the Supreme Court? Or are you going to take the word of the judge who is righteous and true? The world system? Yeah, well, the world made it legal. Babylon said it was okay. Psalm 146, verse 3, I remind you, do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. And I know someone's going to argue with me about the sorcerer thing. Someone's going to come up and go, come on, Rick, cannabis, that can't be so bad. You deal with God on that one. I, that's, not my, that's not my business. I'm just telling you who will not be in New Jerusalem, who will rather instead be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, and it's all sorcerers. We need to look at and think about how we're living. And idolaters. Idolaters who don't necessarily, listen, they don't deny Christ. They just add to Him. I, I believe in Jesus and, and I've got this going on on the side. I've got my little side thing. I have my additional idols or gods or dependencies. And then lastly, all liars. All liars. Of all the reasons for separation from God... And exclusion from New Jerusalem, the last group that Jesus warns against are liars. He repeats it again down in verse 27, those who are lying. And it is the last sin mentioned in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 15, which says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Why is lying such a big deal to God? Well, because He is truth. So it denies even the very character of God who is truth. And the last sin mentioned is the first rebellion. It's Satan lying in the garden. And that invited sin and the death spiral of the world in which we live. And it was false witness that allowed Jesus to be nailed to the cross 
where that lion snake thought he'd won. Finally, we got him. We got him. Isaiah 53 verse 11, however, says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Just when that lion snake thought he had won, Jesus bore our sin on the cross. All of those things, by the way, cowardice and unbelief and abominations and murder and immorality, sexual immorality and sorcery and idolatry and lying, all that that was part of us, that was on us, that was in us, Jesus took it away at Calvary. Washed it away. It's gone. You know, the, the list in Revelation 21.8 could include any one of us either before or this week or today. But what does Paul write? He says, do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And the Spirit is the wellspring of living water. You were washed. (laughs) Your thirst quenched. Such were some of you. You know what? Every one of us fits somewhere on these lists. Have engaged in something on these lists. And these lists get a little nasty. You know what? I don't care if you were on this list before. Jesus doesn't care if you one time resided in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, because such were some of you. That's the way you used to be. That's not you now. That's not you today. So don't practice those old things. Don't go back and do those old things. We're called to live lives that are consistent with a relationship with Jesus. And that's the issue with Revelation 21.8. These things are inconsistent with someone who claims Jesus Christ. They are not characteristic of someone who literally is walking in a relationship with Jesus. They're characteristic, sadly, often of churchgoers who say, yeah, I, I go. When was the last time you went? Well, it was, it was last... Christmas 25, 2005. Check. Is your lifestyle consistent with who you claim to follow? And that's the question that's raised here. Because, man, we were talking Wednesday night about kinship and fellowship and relationship with Jesus. How, how marvelous it is that we're invited into that and we can live in that. And the truth is, it is it is kinship with Him that crushes the desire to sin. It's fellowship with Jesus. It's a relationship. It is sonship that alters me. And it, it makes me thirst for the things of God and what matters to Him. I want to do what He wants me to do. I want to be about the things that He wants me to be about. Why? Because it's, it's Him He's the deal. 
my son's looking for an apartment. And uh, I was dealing with the apartment people. They were calling, talking to me, and they were saying, well, income-wise, it's going to be tight. We're not sure if, if, if he'll make it for the apartment. So all you need to do is just say, just write a letter that says that you support him $1,000 a month, and that will cover the difference, and you don't have to do it. <laughs> just write the letter, and we'll put it in the file. And, and this apartment manager was saying, "That's we do this all the time. We just tell people, write a letter that says this, you don't have to, but if the letter's in there, then he's fine, and he can get the apartment. I said, that's lying. It's not that big a deal. I'm a pastor. That's not what I said. I, I, I can't write a letter like that. Why? Because I'm a pastor. No, because I love Jesus. And because I know that's not what he would do. No can do. I, I, I won't do. And, and that's a, a tiny example. But when you look or think about any of these things or the sin that tempts us or tries to trip us up in our lives, if I'm loving Jesus, that stuff just doesn't appeal. I don't want to be there anymore. In my 20s and early 30s, around lunchtime, I used to start jonesing for Coke. Not cocaine. <laughs> Let's be clear. Pepsi. I just, around 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I wanted a Coke. I want, and I would meet college students out at the, at the university. I would, I would go and hang out with high school students. And we'd go, you know, we'd end up at In-N-Out because it's In-N-Out, right? In-N-Out burger where the burgers and the fries, but you got to have a Coke, man, and a shake. But you got to have the Coke. And I'd have two or three. I really like taking students and meeting up with students at restaurants because you could just sit there and get the free refills. And I kid you not, there was a long season in my life where I guzzled it by the gallon. I was probably one of those big glasses of Pepsi, six or seven a day, maybe more. And I'm sitting here to tell the tale. I guzzled it down, and my friends, it was killing me internally. I really think some of the stuff that I've had to deal with gut-wise now is because of the Pepsi and Coke then. Because of the poison that it was to my system. But you know what? It's what I thirsted for. It's what I wanted. Cheryl would say, just drink water. I don't want water. Water? Hey, we're cooking up a pizza. Have a nice glass of water with your pizza. I want Coke. Give me a hit. I need Coke. Give me a straw. I'll do a line. I just tacos. You don't drink water with tacos. I'm from Southern California, man. You drink the Coke. Or the beer, but I didn't drink that. So it's the Coke. I don't drink it anymore. I had one two weeks ago, and it was... Couldn't wait to get home and have some clear, fresh water. I drink water with everything now. And it tastes so good. And it's so refreshing. And I finally, I finally look to Cheryl and I say, okay, you were right. <laughs> what are you thirsty for? See, that's the issue. Dear fellowship, that's the issue. Listen, chapter 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. 
And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The bride is in step with the Spirit together saying, come and drink. Why is the bride saying, come and drink along with the Spirit? Because the bride knows how refreshing the water of life truly is. Because that's what the bride drinks. She knows, she understands the deep satisfaction of the water of life. We know it's free. We know it's flowing. We know it's available right now. And we don't even have to wait for New Jerusalem. Because Jesus said in John 7.38, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Man, it's making me thirsty. Just... <laughs> But this He spoke, Jesus spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. When, when do we receive the Spirit? Now. Born again? Receive the Spirit. That's the promise. But listen. We're almost done. God will not force the water of life on anyone. You can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink. But believers, I think maybe the other way needs to be considered. Who is he that waters the horse and does not drink himself? The promise of New Jerusalem is to the one who thirsts. I will give, Jesus says, to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. That's the promise. You can claim Christ. You can talk about Christ. You can do the things of Christ. You can do all kinds of things in the name of Christ. But do you drink of the living water yourself? Do you imbibe on the Spirit of God Himself? New Jerusalem is our eternal home, but that's not why God creates it. Jesus wants you to be there. But that's not why it's made. See, the truth is, the purpose of New Jerusalem is to bring all glory and honor and praise to God and to the Lamb. And I'm telling you that to say this, that Jesus knows that giving glory to Him is the most satisfying, satiating, thirst-quenching thing a human being will ever do. Praise God. Father, we come before You this morning with thirsty hearts. But the issue, Lord, that we're addressing here that I believe You're presenting us is not that we're thirsty, but it's what are we thirsty for? And I pray, Lord, that You would replace the bad thirst. Those things we thirst for that are killing us internally. Those things we thirst for that would kill us eternally, Father. All those things the world provides, the world pours out, puts it out on the counter and says, drink up. And all that stuff that's just killing people. Father, lead us to the water of life. For we are thirsty for You. And we long for You. And I pray for the refreshment, Lord, of Your Holy Spirit to be poured out on this fellowship new and fresh this morning and in such a way that we will find ourselves longing for that pure spiritual drink. 
the water of life that you provide. Oh Lord, thank you for the promise. Thank you for the washing away of the sin of the list. Thank you for the cleansing. Thank you for the relationship that leads me not into temptation, but delivers me from evil. Lord, for yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together. If you find yourself thirsty this morning, thirsty for the Spirit of God, why don't you come and just pray about that with a brother or sister? If you're thirsty because you realize you don't live a life of following Jesus, you haven't committed to Him, then come and commit to Him this morning. And I I promised you all, I'm going to be tenacious with this. We are not going to stop inviting people to give their lives to Jesus. Sundays, Wednesdays, we are not going to stop putting it out there. And if no one comes, okay, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. But we certainly can put the water out. We can say it's here for the taking. And believers, listen, believers, don't stand there thirsty this morning. There's something that you need help with. You come before the living God and get your thirst quenched today. Whatever your need is, please come to Him while we sing this song.